This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. I'm Sadia Bhatti. I'm Brian Kotick. And I'm Joel Dahlquist. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% holiday. It's Lucia Dogan today, Joel. Yeah, I saw that in my feed. I don't know if Sadia or really anyone else cares about that, but it's a big thing in Sweden. (laughs) What is that? Can you please explain? It's no, not really. I think it's something to do with light originally, but it's also maybe imported from Italy. And the basic premise is that people put candles in their hair and you walk around in the darkness and sing songs with with live candles. Sounds like Diwali to me. You know, the like Indian light festival. Yeah, it's the same, basically. The the typical Swedish, like blonde haired girl with like candles in her hair, like wreaths around her head. That's like. Definitely from Lucia Dogan. I dressed up as a gingerbread man one year for the, you do a train and sing songs and it was quite intense. Wow. Like at the office, it's a, it's a thing or many offices, at least in Sweden. So where in the world are you right now, Joel? I am in New York City. Where in the world are you, Sadia? I'm in Paris. And where, are, where in the world are you, Brian? I'm in London. This was the reason why we asked this question when we started the <laughs> podcast. And now we can finally say it. What are you doing in Paris, Sadia? Uh, I've got client meetings. Um, had them actually all last week. And um, because of the holidays, I think I'm going to just stay put here at least until 2022 now and work from the Paris office. What about you, Jill? What are you doing in New York? I should probably say that I'm here working, which is only partly true. I'm here with my partner fiance who's american enjoying hopefully the holidays coming up soon um, but we managed to get into the country so we thought we might as well do a little more extra time in new york before we do a little trip around the united states for holidays and then back to new york again for new year's are you um did you guys have any travel horror stories or was it all quite seamless i will say it was so easy we were obviously very nervous because you have to, they change the rules for the testing as they have been doing on and off for the last few months, I guess. Um, but leading up to it, we were nervous. But then once everything was lined up and we had submitted through an app, the Verify app, all the vaccinations and tests and whatnot, the actual flying experience was terrific. I was in such mm. a good mood. Because you were going on holiday. <laughs> yeah, probably. Truly. Yeah. And, and, and also because it was, you know, flying from one big airport to another with a big airline oh, yeah. hanging out in the lounge. This was the, the flying we were Experience. promised. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And you just took the train, Sadia? 
Yeah, I just took the train in Paris. Um, they changed the rules just like 24 hours before I was supposed to go on the train. So there was a lot of additional paperwork and testing to be done. Um, so yeah, it's still it's still a bit of a pain, but it has. That's that's the new uh, the new era. I understand that as of today, if I do go back to London um, anytime soon, I will have to isolate um, pending results, my PCR testing. So it's it's a bit more complicated. Like a bunch of of my colleagues wanted to come, for example, for a week, you know, for two day meeting or a day meeting, which which right. was really regularly done. And now it's more complicated if you have to wait for your results, right? Because or they can put their isolation address as the office, which would probably be quite accurate. <laughs> yeah, but then then you, they defies the purpose of having like a yeah, meeting. Then you're just like <laughs> isolating in the office on the screen again. What is the point of coming to Paris? Yeah, yeah. I think or we, we mm. thought in the pandemic that there would be those types of two-day meetings may have been aborted and done virtually. But I guess we're all a bit anxious to get in front of people. Yeah, I mean, I was meeting my clients here in Paris. They're uh, from Africa. So we they were coming to see us. And it was the first time I was seeing them for the real time. And it was the same thing you were talking about, Brian. Yes, I confirm. It is a whole other level. It's so important to meet people in person. You connect with them in such a different level. And also, like, it's not just a social. Because you connect socially, you get so much more information <laughs> Oh, absolutely. On, on the case and on stuff that matters i was like why did you not tell me this and a year ago this is super relevant information and it's like oh, i don't know i didn't think about it during this yeah, call 100 <laughs> percent. yeah and then you realize your client's like six feet tall or four feet three and you're just like, yeah you don't even know because i started a firm with a colleague of mine from winston um salama too and um james my partner's never met him and so he, he came over to do one of our trial days and James was like, it's not who I expected because he only saw him on, uh, on video links. So that's a funny surprise. Yeah. Well, should we get this episode underway? What are we talking about, guys? I will start with a substantive segment about preconditions to arbitration. Um, although this may seem like a very mundane topic, it has come to my attention in the iteration of a construction contract and how many preconditions they have in construction contracts, specifically the FIDIC um, contracts and these types of like standard EPC contracts um, where you have an involvement of an engineer or a uh, dispute adjudicatory body. Um, so I am going to talk about how, I'll, I'll give kind of a brief overview of preconditions and how different jurisdictions handle them. And then we'll delve in a bit more specifically on how construction contracts have been construed in different jurisdictions as well. Speaking of construing and construction. Uh, Ooh, segue! <laughs> <laughs> we're going like the other end of the arbitration spectrum from construction disputes to treaty interpretation, hardcore international law, but a different kind of construction. How to construct treaties, treaty interpretation, which is a segment that we're doing uh, with an interview with the aid of Professor Michael Weibel, who's a professor of international law at the University of Vienna. He was at Cambridge for, I think, over a decade. And he was there when I was at the Lauterpacht Center. And he's he knows Sadia well from their joint days in Cambridge. But these days, he's back in his native Vienna, where he's a full professor of international law and a terrific generalist international lawyer. So we're having him explain the basic of treaty interpretation for arbitration dummies, basically. 
Look at us living up to our motto of commercial and investment arbitration. Yeah, that's great. And what about happy fun time? Happy fun time. An interesting uh, saying goodbye to 2021, but also saying goodbye to your firm. Uh, Talking about brand loyalty, which is what I've coined the happy fun time topic. Basically, if there's if you're leaving firms or a firm is changing or splitting, what how do you leave and what are the protocols in leaving and what are you expected in terms of loyalty to your previous employers or firms and kind of just, well, talk generally insights. I think I'll give a real world perspective and you guys can think about what you would do if something happened <laughs> in your companies. <laughs> Perfect. Well, great. Looking forward to it. All right. Preconditions to arbitration agreements. So as we know, arbitration agreements often provide certain procedural steps that must be undertaken or may be undertaken before an arbitration is commenced, such as discussions, mediations, or negotiations. And the purpose of these pre-procedural steps uh, is to impose a cooling off period in which the parties can seek to resolve their dispute amicably before resorting to formal proceedings. And I think we see this quite often, typically where it provides for negotiation for a period of 30 days, 60 days, or just general negotiations. Um, and when a party fails to satisfy a pre-arbitration procedural step and launches prematurely, one could argue, into arbitration, the respondent party may wish to challenge such conduct and claim that the arbitral tribunal does not have jurisdiction to hear the dispute or that the claims are not admissible. Um, We're going to go into that differentiation later on in the segment, but that's kind of the scope of this segment. And as Gary Bourne calls it, he says that there is a dismal swamp uh, for these preconditions to arbitration in terms of legal inconsistency, uncertainty, and also disputes relating specifically to the fulfillment of these preconditions. Now, just to give some uh, independent or some separate jurisdictions and how they approach it, we'll go first to China, where I read an article from Peter Newman at Pepperdine School of Law, and he's also an independent arbitrator, so a fellow Los Angelino. He has reported that Chinese courts do not rigidly assess multi-tiered clauses as a matter of admissibility or jurisdiction or procedure. So despite occasionally conflating these legal theories, they appear to navigate these murky waters cautiously and demonstrating a predilection for respecting the arbitral jurisdiction and upholding the awards. And he cites a April 21, 2021 study of pre-arbitration procedural requirements by the Wuhan Arbitration Commission. Did you guys know that Wuhan had an arbitration commission? (laughs) thought that was quite funny. I bet they're um, not taking any in-person meetings at the moment. Not what they're famous <laughs> yeah. for is their arbitration. <laughs> I know. Everybody knows <laughs> we have the wrong reason. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But now they have an arbitration commission we can cite to and think of when you think of Wuhan. Uh, in that report, they found that courts in China typically decline to support petitions to invalidate arbitration agreements on the grounds that the parties failed to conduct requisite negotiations. And they identified 12 cases and in all of them, the courts declined to support such uh, petitions. Also, they found that Chinese courts appear to treat time limits as procedural formalities, but not necessarily having jurisdictional consequences. There was one case cited, uh, Jiang Xingfeng versus Li Zhenyu, and I apologize for that butchering of the pronunciation. 
And in that case, there was a 2019 decision. They found the court found that the passage of a two months from the delivery of the demand letter to filing arbitration was sufficient to satisfy the 30 day negotiate negotiation period precondition. Um, in that case, the court rejected the petitioner's argument that the war should be annulled because of a failure to perform some more formal negotiations um, and and what and declined to find that it constituted a violation of legally mandated procedures. Um, so they found the court found that the required pre-filing negotiations did not constitute an agreement of different arbitration pr procedures, and therefore it was found to be non-mandatory in that case. Uh, if we go to India to take a different uh, perspective, the Supreme Court in India, an Oriental Insurance Company took the view that arbitration clauses must be construed strictly and therefore requiring completion of preconditions to arbitration. Um, for example, that in that case, there was a dispute arising out of an insurance contract and the arbitration clauses stipulated that disputes could not be referred to arbitration if the insurance company disputed its liability under the applicable policy, which I thought was quite a broad clause to be included in an arbitration agreement. So if, if the insurance company disputed its liability, which seems to be per se why you would invoke a dispute resolution clause, then it could not be referred to arbitration. Um, and even though the existence of an arbitration agreement was not disputed in and of itself, the Supreme Court found that the arbitration agreement could be activated or kindled upon the completion of these preconditions. Um, and it found that to be a sine qua non for triggering the arbitration clause. Um, there was another case, Damara Distilleries, also in India, that discussed um, an arbitration clause that required parties to engage in mutual discussions, followed by mediation. Um, the Supreme Court of India found that um, the objections calling the initiation of the arbitration to be premature without resorting to mediation did not, quote, merit any serious consideration. It was held that various correspondence between the parties indicated that any mutual discussions or mediations would be an empty formality. Um, so what is interesting to take from that case is that there was a discussion on the likelihood of success of the pre-arbitration conditions and whether that would make them mandatory or not. So if it was there was a likelihood or whether it would be completely futile. Uh, one more, just to round off this global perspective, um, in the MENA region, specifically in the UAE, um, the courts in the UAE expect parties to comply with any preconditions to arbitrations that they have agreed upon. And on many occasions, the UAE courts have nullified an arbitral award in circumstances where the claimants have failed to satisfy pre-arbitration requirements. And this is particularly so where the wording of the dispute resolution clause is clear and that the arbitration steps constitute jurisdictional conditions precedent. Um, and this is similar to kind of the approach taken in Singapore, where if preconditions are clearly defined with sufficient clarity and specificity, they are mandatory. Um, and I think that's kind of the overarching thing that we um, understand with conditions precedent to initiating arbitration, which is the more concrete the clause is, the more uh, likelihood that the court will find that it is mandatory. Now, I wanted to take you specifically to construction because um, I think that there is a um, unique construct in construction arbitrations 
pun intended, uh, in their arbitration clause. And I think the perhaps the best known example of a multi-tiered dispute resolution clause is in clause 67 of FIDIC and clause 20 of its rainbow suite of contracts. Um, under clause 67 of the FIDIC Red Book, all disputes are to be referred to an engineer in the first instance for a decision. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry for not waving. We have to, this is the, you know, the, the whole thing that I have with acronyms. Uh-huh. What, what, is, what is FIDIC? And please explain why that is relevant for those of us who do not typically engage in yes. construction disputes. <laughs> uh, let me find that. It is, the, it is the International Federation for Consulting Engineers. Um, so it is... Because it's Fédération Internationale des Ingénieurs Conseil. It's a French language acronym. Which oh. means the International Federation of Consulting Engineers. That's what the I was fr- like. I was like, because FIDIC doesn't Les really match the, the English. It's the French. Yeah. Oh, thank God you're here, Sadia. <laughs> well, because when I Google it, my first thing is French. So they're like, of course, it's a French thing. Yeah. Yes. So it's the International Standard Organization for Consulting, Engineering, and Construction Contracts. Um, so it's, it, and these are really like turnkey contracts that can be amended by parties. But um, when you have the Red Book, you can basically just adopt FIDIC in, in total. Um, and that would be the, the contract for the dispute. Got it. And it was, it was originally founded by a trio of countries, France, Belgium, and Switzerland in 1913, which explains why the acronym is French, in French. There we go. Yeah. It's almost always the explanation. If anything is in French, it's because it's old and from a time when French <laughs> mattered. <laughs> oh. oh! Attention! Yeah, any report? That's fired. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in the 1987 Red Book, as a Red Book, as I said, it was um, first you had to refer to an engineer and then that engineer's decision would be final and binding upon the parties unless and until a dissatisfied party wanted to proceed to arbitration. Then in 1999, the FIDIC suite kept the engineer, but added a dedicated impartial dispute adjudication board under clause 20, which could be standing or ad hoc and appointed only when um, a dispute arose. So you had basically this two tiered approach of sending it first to an engineer to make an expert determination and then to this dispute adjudicative body, which is acronymed DAB um, for the TikTokers and um, millennials out there. Um, so in the context of a contract based on the 1999 FIDIC form, so this new, this two-step process, if the DAB is in place, then the respondent should have little difficulty convincing a tribunal that the arbitration is premature and consequently the tribunal would be without jurisdiction. But if on the other hand, a DAB was not in place, the position is arguably less clear. Uh, a FIDIC DAB process can become difficult or impossible to implement when a dispute arises for a variety of reasons. For example, if parties are unable to agree on its members or there's disagreements as to their remuneration, or if one party is simply refusing to sign the agreement of appointing the adjudicator or the DAB uh, members. Um, so that is kind of the unique perspective of construction contracts as related to pre-arbitration. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I had actually two DAB cases, oh, really? uh, which, which, which are very similar to arbitration, to be honest. It's like a quick and dirty arbitration, in my view. Uh, we had witnesses, site visits, um, pleadings, 
you know, all of that jazz. Um, and, um, and there was no DEB in both cases. The DEB was not constituted at the time of the dispute. And I was just, I, the first time I was like, is that normal? Yeah. And apparently it's pretty common. And then how do they appoint these members? Is it a similar like list exchange? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you kind of, so in those cases, it was referred to the ICC rules, I think. Um, and uh, there was a whole process on, on how to appoint uh, dispute members and dispute board members. And so it was very similar, like appointing a tribunal. Right. And then they come to a decision, I presume. Yeah, they come to a decision. And, and uh, in one of those cases, yeah, the decision led to a successful uh, settlement. And yeah, and I think it's obviously, and this is the unique, the unique perspective with construction contracts is that there is an intention to keep the project moving because if you stall a project and everyone knows that construction equals delay equals disputes, um, that mm-hmm. you need to kind of combat that and create some sort of body that can be standing or ad hoc in order to you know resolve these and make sure that the the project can continue, mm-hmm. um, which also kind of highlights why it's probably important to observe these preconditions. Um, There was a court case in Pakistan relating to the Clause 67 of the contract, which was um, basically based off fitted Clause 67 of the 1987 rules. Um, And in that clause, the contract provided that any any dispute arising in connection with or out of the contract was to be referred firstly to an engineer for his decision. And if either party was aggrieved by the engineer's decision, or if the engineer failed to give a notice of his decision within a certain period of time, then either party could refer the dispute to arbitration under Pakistan's Arbitration Act. Um, In the Arbitration Act Section 20 in Pakistan, it provided that uh, the intervention of a court to compel arbitration where a party to an arbitration agreement refuses to take steps necessary to initiate arbitration proceedings. So the applicant in that case filed an application under the Section 20 of the Arbitration Act and the Islamabad High Court Uh, with the Islamabad High Court seeking to initiate arbitration proceedings without first referring the dispute to the engineer. Um, And the reason why they did that is because there was a suspicion of bias on the engineer uh, who was going to be issuing his decision on the dispute. And the Islamabad High Court expressed the view that if the parties have agreed on certain conditions that precede the operation of an arbitration clause, those need to be fulfilled before an arbitration clause can be invoked. The court noted that in construction or engineering contracts which provide such multi-tier clauses, an aggrieved party's right to refer contractual disputes to arbitration is preconditioned on the reference of the dispute to those mechanisms. Um, the high court placed reliance on contract law principles and common law, mostly relevant in common law jurisdictions, that a court cannot rewrite an agreement between the parties or exempt a party from complying with its contractual obligations. So they referred the case to the engineer, which is interesting. Another case out of Switzerland, and this is an article written by Maxi Scherer and Sam Moss of, in the La Lieve in 2014. Uh, it was a Swiss federal Supreme Court got a case that to address the enforceability of a precondition for arbitration in a multi-tier dispute resolution provision, namely the requirement to submit a dispute to the DAB body board under clause 20 of the fitted conditions. The Supreme Court's decision concerned a challenge of a partial award 
in which the ICC tribunal found that it had jurisdiction to hear the dispute under Clause 20, despite the fact that the DAB proceedings had not taken place. So the owner in that case and the underlying ICC case objected to the arbitral tribunal's jurisdiction, arguing that before the arbitration could be initiated, the DAB proceedings had to be completed. So the partial award that was issued on that specific issue uh, was a majority of the tribunal found that it had jurisdiction, despite the fact that this dispute had not been previously decided by the DAB. But in its reasoning, the Supreme Court um, referred to uh, the tribunal's reliance on the grammatical interpretation of those subclauses, focusing on the shall versus may. Um, and they found that um, the Supreme Court Although referred to the reasoning, they found that the use of the term shall in one of the subclauses led to the conclusion that the DAB proceedings were mandatory precondition for the arbitration. And although there was use of the term may in a subsequent subclause, it had to be read in the context of the mandatory provision and it did not disqualify the mandatory nature of the precondition. Um, and then there was also another consideration of the court concerning the absence of a contractual time limit for the cons constitution of the DAB. So what I said before is that the more concrete the provision, specifically the invocation of a time limit, making it more mandatory, they said that um, and in Obiter, that the absence of the, the time limit did not invalidate that mandatory uh, nature. So that's kind of the global runaround that I've just given you. And I think some, uh, some other things to consider, and I don't want to, you know, make this completely doctrinal uh, and make it a bit more conversational, is whether this can be an issue of jurisdiction or admissibility, because this also depends on the jurisdiction in which you are either seeking to set aside an award or um, the interpretation of the arbitration agreement, because um, in that case, the Swiss, uh, the Swiss court case I just mentioned, the court had to go through an applicable law analysis to the preconditions. And they found that even though Swiss law was not the applicable law to the contract, they found that Swiss law as being the law of the seat uh, would be the law to be applied to the interpretation of that provision, which I thought was interesting. Um, but now we go to England, which just to give an example of how this uh, decision between jurisdiction and admissibility comes up. And um, a, they have, we've had two cases and now I'm making it relevant, even though you may find this a bit passe, but uh, there was one case in March 2021, Republic of Sierra Leone versus SL Mining, and then a new case in just October of 2021, uh, NWA versus NVF, um, where they decided, and basically this is the prevailing view in England, is that such issues relating to the, the failure to fulfill the preconditions to an arbitration agreement is a matter of admissibility and not to jurisdiction. So these things should be referred to the tribunal to determine the admissibility and should not in any way inhibit the initiation of the arbitral proceedings. And there in that uh, English uh, high court, in those English high court cases, and specifically in the uh, Republic of Sierra Leone case, they referred to other uh, jurisdictions, uh, jurisprudence on this, specifically the US in BG Group versus Argentina, where they rejected a challenge to an arbitral award on the basis that a mandatory precondition to arbitration to exhaust local remedies had not been complied with. And they found that to be 
uh, not a question of jurisdiction in the United States, but in a matter of admissibility. And they also cite to the Supreme Court of Appeal case in BBA v. BBAZ, also determining that it is a matter of admissibility. So, in conclusion, I uh, thought that pre these preconditions were kind of a easy issue to cast off your desk, which is if it's concrete or not, then we can decide whether it's mandatory or not. But as you can see, and as Gary Bourne called it, it is muddy waters out there and you need to be completely aware of the local jurisdiction in which you plan to either set aside or enforce the award um, or the seats of arbitration all become relevant. And that goes back to season two, just isn't it, Joel? The seat of arbitration. Yes, always, always, always. And also what, what law is applicable to whether or not this is a mandatory step you have to go through because if that's not, mm -hmm. it's a separate discussion. Is it the law of the seat or the law of the contract? Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. I think mm -hmm. although the Swiss court said that, I don't think that's a prevailing view globally. So mm -hmm. I have just, you know, to, to round this off with construction contracts, I've recently seen a clause in a uh, uh, engineering procurement and construction and EPC standard contract. And one of the provisions of the contract said that the arbitration cannot be commenced until all work is completed or the contract itself has been terminated, which, um, you know, I'm That's not going to get to it since it's a standing case, but yeah, it is very tough. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> is that exactly what it says? Yes. Oh, um, gosh. Yeah. I mean, the contract itself is really um, cumbersome and on many other provisions as well, but it definitely I mean, you would then have to go into some sort of policy analysis saying, mm -hmm. and this goes to this, this other case about whether a party refuses to agree to a DAB being appointed, for example, is mm -hmm. that, you know, you go to the likelihood of success of entering into these negotiations and mm -hmm. should a party be completely prevented from referring, it, it almost gets to a due process discussion about whether you basically can't enforce your rights and you're obligated to continue yeah. working until... Yeah, but it's, all, it's also consent to arbitration is key, right? Mm -hmm. So that means they haven't given their consent to arbitration fully before True. it works out. I mean, that's the other side to be imagine. I guess you have to consider maybe doing, you know, filing interim measures or some sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Gets complicated. I never thought I'd talk about construction at all or on this podcast. So I'm happy to uh, break the seal. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's impressive. Let, yeah, we, thank you. We, we did think that we, Saudi and I, would talk about treaty interpretation. Though that's much more obvious. So <laughs> let's, well, let's, let's go. go to that. <laughs> let's let's start from the beginning. Assume, just for the sake of argument, that I'm a I'm a commercial arbitration lawyer, and I may be from a civil law background or a common law background, but I have a pretty good idea of how to read a contract, both in my home jurisdiction and in some other jurisdictions. I've worked on a few international cases. I know the basis of how international contracts could be understood, depending, of course, on the applicable law. Now I have a case based on a treaty. What, if it's even possible to answer that question, what do I need to know about how treaty interpretation, generally speaking, differs from the way I would normally read a contract. So treaty interpretation, um, 
the primary focus is on the text uh, of the treaty. Um, and I think three uh, contextual differences between interpretation of contracts or statutes in domestic legal systems um, and the interpretation of treaties um, explain this focus on uh, text in treaty interpretation. So the first of these three differences um, is <clears throat> that unlike um, in domestic legal systems where we, where we usually have a single organ that passes a legislation, if we think about multilateral treaties, we have a multitude of states or certainly more than one state uh, that are responsible for um, negotiating and concluding um, treaties. Um, and that is coupled with uh, a great diversity uh, of national traditions um, in how you interpret contracts um, and statutes. Um, and so one of the reasons why the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties contains principles on treaty interpretation is that it was thought desirable, perhaps even necessary, to have some minimum level of harmonization as how you go about um, interpreting um, a treaty. And I think the second difference is that whereas a lot of um, interpretation in domestic legal systems, you always have a, a court, or at least most of the time you have a court who could ultimately interpret uh, a contract or a statute uh, in international law that still remains the exception unless we focus specifically on investor state arbitration. But more generally, beyond investor state arbitration, uh, <clears throat> all um, uh, adjudication is based on the consent of states and often states don't uh, give that consent. So the primary interpreters uh, of treaties are, are states and to a lesser uh, degree, uh, international organizations. Traditional interpretations um, of uh, treaties um, are uh, still rather the exception uh, <clears throat> uh, than uh, the norm. And the, I think the third contextual difference is that um, many treaties and not just multilateral treaties um, are in two or even more um, authentic uh, languages. And that raises, or at least can raise special challenges uh, for uh, interpretation, uh, more so than what you typically have in, in domestic uh, legal systems. That's several good points, several good things to pick up on. One thing I was thinking about immediately, because I think in all three contextual uh, points that, that you raised, you touched on the difference between multilateral and bilateral treaties. And, and obviously in investor state arbitration, we do have multilateral investment treaties famously, but the vast majority are bilateral. Would you say that there's any difference whatsoever with respect to uh, the approach to interpretation, because I guess you could make the argument that uh, a BIT is essentially a contractual bargain between two entities, albeit that they happen to be states, whereas the ECT with 45, 50 signatories is more like a, a lawmaking treaty closer to, to something else than a contract. So I think it's difficult to say that there is anything systematically different if we observe interpretive practice about multilateral versus bilateral uh, treaties. But I, I do think that we have um, differences and perhaps even systematic differences uh, depending on which 
area of international law uh, we're looking at, right? So if you compare, for example, um, <clears throat> human rights um, treaties, um, how they are interpreted, um, as opposed to say um, extradition uh, or um, investment treaties. So I think you can see some uh, systematic uh, differences um, there, but I think it's, it's hard to map these differences onto the bilateral versus multilateral uh, treaty framework. Speaking of other areas, you're a general international lawyer. We don't have a lot of those on the podcast. How do you, from your more generalist expertise, think of the way the, the Vienna Convention and, and more specifically Articles 31 to 33 are utilized either in advocacy or in awards in the field of investment arbitration compared to other areas of international law? So I think if we look at what investor state tribunals um, have done, I think it's probably fair to say that at least early investor state um, awards, at least some of them, uh, show uh, what I would call an excessive reliance on the object and purpose of um, investment treaties, which was construed often to be increasing the protection of investors and perhaps even to achieve um, a higher, the maximum degree of investment protection uh, possible. I've written that I think this is uh, problematic from the point of view of the Vienna Convention's principles on, on treaty interpretation because it gives undue uh, uh, weight, in my view, uh, to the object and purpose of the treaty as compared uh, to the text um, of um, the treaty. But I think uh, more recently, um, investor state tribunals um, have approached um, questions of treaty interpretation on the whole uh, in a more balanced fashion, more in keeping with uh, what the Vienna Convention, what the drafters of the Vienna Convention uh, had um, in mind. But I think there's also one important, um, perhaps general caveat that applies to um, investor state arbitral tribunals using the Vienna Convention um, <clears throat> principles on, tre on treaty interpretation, as well as all other adjudicators, whether international or domestic, and that is really the high level of generality of what we have uh, in the Vienna Convention. This is wasn't designed to be uh, particularly pre uh, prescriptive or constraining uh, for uh, treaty interpreters. It was really designed to provide a, a minimum uh, harmonization um, and perhaps also to do away with a whole uh, a, a range of um, canons of construction that are used in some legal systems, uh, but not um, in others. And there was also no agreement in the 90, back in the 1960s when the Vienna Convention uh, was um, drafted on whether it was desirable to have interpretive principles or rules in this convention uh, in uh, the first place. Certainly the, the special rapporteurs um, <clears throat> on the law of treaties many of whom uh, were trained in the common law uh, tradition, uh, didn't think that it was desirable to have rules-based interpretive um, guidance, uh, that this was something that had to be done on a case-by-case uh, case, uh, basis. And what we have in the Vienna Convention uh, is really a, a minimal degree uh, of um, common sense, one could say, of how one should go about uh, interpreting a treaty. So, the caveat really is that it's hard to say because of this generality 
that a particular court or tribunal doesn't faithfully apply uh, the Vienna uh, Convention. That, of course, raises the more overarching question as to whether or not it is desirable that it is it being treaty interpretation. And if we stick with investor state arbitration specifically, that, that tribunals uh, follow some sort of blueprint. You're, you're, you're saying, and I take that to be a, a fairly accurate characterization of, of the interpretive rules of the Vienna Convention, that it's sort of a lowest common denominator, not particularly helpful uh, in terms of giving you a prescriptive roadmap. But it, it, is it desirable that tribunals still strive for some sort of uniform approach to interpretation? Because, you know, you can imagine that you can shoehorn more or less whatever kind of approach you would like into uh, the Vienna Convention principles, depending on where you're from and what your preference is as adjudicator. It sounds so much like a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a cross-examination, Councillor. <laughs> Yes, so I think there, there can be real value for, for transparency, uh, for consistency, predictability, um, and accountability of having these interpretive principles um, in, uh, in the Vienna Convention. And I think it's fair to say that part of the reason why uh, we have these interpretive principles is that you, there was a desire to depoliticize the treaty interpretation uh, process um, and perhaps adjudication uh, more generally. Right? So we can think uh, of these interpretive principles in the Vienna Convention as procedural rationality uh, requirements. Treaty interpreters, certainly adjudicators, need to explain how they arrive uh, at a particular uh, reading of a provision uh, in um, a, a treaty. I think that's an important function that these interpretive principles in the Vienna Convention can and, and often uh, do uh, play, but I think at the same time it's important not to uh, <clears throat> have too much uh, or not to expect too much uh, of these uh, interpretive uh, principles. And of course, if there is um, <clears throat> a desire by a particular court or tribunal or by any uh, treaty interpreter really to reach a particular result, they can. Uh, generally find a way of justifying that uh, under um, the Vienna Convention's principles uh, of, of interpretation. Um, <clears throat> I think it, it does depend a lot on uh, what is the general uh, approach of the particular court uh, or tribunal. And I think we see that very clearly if we look at um, diversity uh, in how treaties are interpreted by national courts. If you compare, for example, uh, English um, and U.S. courts, uh, you see some, some interesting differences um, <clears throat> between these two important uh, legal systems uh, in the common law world. And the same applies uh, to other uh, national uh, judiciaries. I think we are all influenced, uh, whether we have uh, much training in international law uh, or not, we are all influenced by our particular national uh, tradition or traditions and, and legal uh, training. Um, and sometimes, and, and often this is uh, not consciously, uh, but this is just uh, what we uh, what we are used to. And I think that also spills over uh, into uh, treaty interpretation when someone uh, who is, to some extent at least, the product of a particular national uh, tradition uh, interprets um, a treaty, or when judges on a, a national on national courts in a particular jurisdiction uh, interpret uh, treaties. 
you sometimes um, observe uh, that they interpret the treaty much like they would interpret um, a contract uh, or uh, a statute uh, in that particular uh, national legal system. I have on, on that note, uh, two small follow-up questions speaking uh, as we are now as three civil law trained lawyers, two elements that, that I was taught in law school in Sweden, and I would venture, I guess, that it is similar in Austria and in France, um, to, to important elements to any interpretation of a contract, at least, would be uh, the party's intentions and preparatory works, if we're talking about legislation, two key elements that I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on their role in treaty interpretation. Do the party's intentions, you know, in the civil law context, you can always try to look beyond the, the text of the document, but you've already said that the, the text is the starting point for the Vienna Convention. And with respect to preparatory works, I know you've written a bit about how this applies in investment arbitration. So I'm curious to hear some more of your thoughts. Yeah, so I think this goes partly back to what I said at the beginning um, about the a first contextual difference that we don't have a, a single legislator uh, in international law. Um, and so it's much more difficult uh, when it comes to treaties to say, this is the intention uh, of uh, the legislator. <clears throat> so often, particularly, but not only with multilateral uh, treaties, it can be incredibly difficult uh, to figure out uh, what uh, the intention of the parties was. Uh, <clears throat> and that led uh, initially the International Law Commission, uh, which prepared a draft of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, uh, and then the Vienna Conference uh, that concluded um, <clears throat> the Vienna Convention. Uh, to really focus on the text as the authentic expression of what the parties uh, intend. So I think it is correct to say that there is more of a focus on the text uh, in treaty interpretation than what we typically see uh, in uh, domestic law. And states um, have long attached great importance uh, to this because they consider that they carefully negotiate uh, their, uh, their international commitments as reflected um, in treaties, they choose uh, words uh, with a certain purpose um, um, in mind. Uh, but what ultimately matters for treaty interpretation is what we find uh, in uh, the, the text. They don't want uh, international courts and tribunals um, speculating, uh, guessing what their intention uh, may have been. Um, and that also links to the second part of your question about um, preparatory uh, materials. There was a big divide at the uh, Vienna conference uh, between those who said um, the focus ought to be uh, on the text for the reasons I've mentioned, and those who said that there should be more liberal use made of preparatory uh, materials, that this was a very important element that preparatory materials, at least in some cases, particularly uh, lawmaking and multilateral uh, treaties, was an important element uh, of uh, the interpretive uh, process. And this was championed above all uh, by a famous um, academic a lawyer based in the United States, uh, Myers McDougall, uh, associated with the New Haven School, um, who wanted a much greater role 
for uh, Travaux than many other um, delegates um, at this um, conference. <clears throat> and the debate about what exactly uh, the outcome is uh, continues. I think there are, broadly speaking, two uh, different views. The first view is that the Vienna Convention tightly circumscribes uh, what under what circumstances preparatory materials may be used um, in treaty interpretation, that this is really the exceptional case. And I think there's a second school of thought that um, <clears throat> while there are real limits as to when uh, preparatory materials may be used in treaty interpretation, these uh, limits are not as constraining uh, as the first school uh, suggests. So that is, we can uh, and do use uh, preparatory materials uh, regularly uh, in uh, treaty interpretation. Certainly to confirm um, a preliminary interpretation uh, based on the word, uh, on the wording of a particular provision to see whether that, um, <clears throat> that interpretation finds support or not um, in the preparatory uh, materials. But I think at the end of the day, it is, um, the case that preparatory materials play a lesser role uh, than <clears throat> uh, in international law, in treaty interpretation, than they play uh, in statutory interpretation in some domestic legal systems. What are the preparatory works? What constitutes preparatory works in, in, in the world of investment arbitration? You know, we for some multilateral treaties, I think of the Exit Convention, for example, you know, there's pretty well-documented drafting history with delegations expressing themselves. But the average bit, by contrast, there's not a lot of, at least not joint preparatory works. There might be things that either side's foreign ministry has documented or parliamentary debates or what it may be. What, what is really, when we talk about preparatory works in investment arbitration, what are we really talking about? Yes, I think you're absolutely right that there's a a considerable diversity of what could possibly, what might qualify as preparatory works in, in, in investor state arbitration um, and in uh, treaty interpretation uh, more generally. Um, and curiously, we don't have a, uh, an accepted definition uh, of what constitutes uh, preparatory uh, works. And I think that uh, gives considerable room for um, advocates uh, to be creative about um, <clears throat> about what counts uh, as preparatory uh, materials. Now, in, in recent uh, writing with my co-author, um, Esme Sherlow, uh, we have um, <clears throat> argued that one should uh, adopt what we call a sliding scale uh, approach, that at the end of the day, the question isn't prim shouldn't primarily be about, is about the binary question, is this um, preparatory, a preparatory material, uh, yes or no, um, and then <clears throat> if it is not a preparatory material, uh, then it's disregarded entirely for the interpretive process. But to give um, <clears throat> more weight uh, to a material that is more clearly preparatory material that is based on um, a shared understanding um, of the negotiating parties, for example, then to other materials that are more on the outer reaches of preparatory materials. Just on that, I, I have a question. Um, what What do you think of the um, there's there's a NUNCTAD recommendation? I, I, I saw recently a NUNCTAD report 
where they recommend the inclusion of interpretation from states of a particular provision um, and that that interpretation would be binding on the tribunal. So, for example, I think there was a provision like this in NAFTA and it's been used uh, by, you know, the US, uh, I think, and in, in Canada um, on the interpretation of FET. Uh, and I'm seeing this also now in, for example, I saw it in the South African Development Community uh, Model Treaty. Um, do you think that would be a practice that would be um, something that the state should do more than rely on preparatory works per se, which which I understand are before uh, the negotiation of the treaty. Well, I think there, there's. I think that's a, a big. So I think um, whether that is desirable, um, that's a, an important policy question. I think there is no no doubt that it is entirely compatible uh, with the Vienna Convention's principles on on treaty interpretation to include um, such um, provisions um, on binding interpretations by the uh, treaty parties uh, in, um, in treaties. Um, after all, um, articles uh, 32, 1 and 32 of the Vienna Convention are just default uh, rules uh, or principles, and states are entirely free to include uh, whatever more specific um, interpretive guidance they want uh, in their um, in their treaties, um, and for various reasons, I think we we observe in the in in, in investment uh, as, as insofar as investment treaties are concerned, a a, a trend in that direction uh, that states want to um, assert some greater degree of control over how uh, treaties are interpreted. Uh, by uh, adjudicatory bodies, especially investor state um, tribunals. So I think this is ultimately a question of uh, what degree of delegation of interpretive authority uh, are uh, states uh, comfortable with. And I think they have discovered, perhaps through trial and error, uh, that, they aren't, that they aren't entirely comfortable with the very high degree uh, of delegation of interpretive authority that has been uh, in place uh, for the first couple of decades uh, of the investment uh, treaty uh, regime and are taking some of that uh, back. Does that mean we're going to see less reliance of on the Vienna Convention then and more on actual treaty interpretation by the states themselves? It, it could, yes. I think that could be one reason why we might see somewhat less uh, reliance. Um, I think um, there's some really interesting work by Isabel van Damme, among others, um, and, and others as well, that looked at um, how, how does treaty interpretation in the early years of a regime compare to a phase in which uh, a regime is more uh, mature? Um, and so what we, what we see, for example, with um, the WTO's uh, appellate body uh, is that it referred very um, regularly, ritualistically almost, uh, to the Vienna Convention on the Law of T Treaties. And uh, some commentators regard that as a way of building uh, up the legitimacy uh, of that adjudicatory uh, bodies. We observe the same thing in certain uh, national legal systems uh, countries uh, in transition, perhaps from an autocracy to a democracy, where we have new uh, a new Supreme Court uh, that is being established when that Supreme Court uh, comes to interpret uh, treaties. Um, there are benefits for the court um, in referring uh, very regularly to the Vienna Convention 
on the law of trees because that's a way of bolstering uh, its own legitimacy vis-a-vis -vis other uh, domestic um, actors. And conversely, uh, once we have um, a certain degree of maturity uh, in a particular uh, regime, uh, we might see less of these uh, ritualistic invocations of the Vienna uh, Convention. Um, and perhaps um, the courts and tribunals just go about the business of interpreting uh, the treaties. I actually looked at this in uh, for my doctoral dissertation on, on set-aside proceedings based on you know, and when investment treaty uh, awards are being set aside in domestic courts and, and found something similar as well, that the uh, pro-arbitration, if you will, jurisdiction uh, courts there, at least for, for a, a relatively long time span, really seemed to make an effort to rely on the Vienna Convention when they were interpreting jurisdictional requirements in treaties as part of a jurisdictional challenge against uh, an investment treaty tribunal. But it's interesting. I, I I've always assumed that 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 in in itself was a sign of of maturing, so to speak. That maybe initially, um, perhaps it was because it was in a domestic context. But initially, uh, the first few cases that were challenged in a particular jurisdiction were treated as if they were domestic or arbitral awards based on a contract, and then. Over time, the, the signaling symbolic effort of relying on the Vienna Convention became clear as courts became more sophisticated. But I guess that it, it can go both ways. So, I think that's right. so I think there is probably this initial phase uh, where you might not have any uh, invocation of um, the Vienna Convention's uh, interpretive principles. And one can think of several uh, national legal systems where uh, it is really difficult to find examples of where national courts, uh, when interpreting treaties, uh, refer uh, to um, the Vienna Convention. Uh, and then they might start doing that, but still really in practice interpret um, the treaty as if it were a domestic statute uh, or a contract. And perhaps then the final phase uh, or the most mature phase would be uh, where the court in fact uh, adjusts its interpretive um, approach and interprets the treaty as a treaty should be interpreted rather than uh, like a domestic contract or statute. Should we conclude that um, the European Court of Justice is, is immature then <laughs> if we read the Comstroy decision and they do not refer to the Vienna, Con uh, Vienna Convention when they interpret the uh, Energy Charter Treaty? Speaking of leading questions, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I would be careful uh, with uh, jumping to that particular um, conclusion. After all, uh, the Court of Justice of the European Union um, has been around uh, for um, for several uh, decades. And I think um, European Union law and the Court of Justice of the European Union uh, may be a special case in the following sense. There has long been um, I think um, a conscious attempt by the Court of Justice um, to construe uh, um, European Union law um, as a, a legal order that was different, uh, that differed materially from a traditional uh, public um, international law. And I think against that background, um, it is perhaps understandable uh, why the court uh, doesn't necessarily why the court isn't necessarily inclined to refer to the Vienna Convention's principles uh, on interpretation because it regards the EU legal order as something that has evolved beyond um, a, a regime uh, of uh, international 
law with his own um, interpretive um, principles. Um, I think one can be very critical uh, of that, um, but um, I think that might in part explain uh, why we uh, do not observe um, frequent uh, invocations of the VCLT's principles on interpretation by the Court of Justice of the European Union. Mm. There's no way around talking about the, the European Union law aspects whenever <laughs> we talk about investment arbitration. I think this uh, concludes at least the, the, the things I, I wanted to ask you, Michael. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy professor schedule to talk to two novices. And thank you for referring to preparatory works consistently in English and not in French, which I'm sure enraged Sadia. <laughs> I was going to jump about that, but, you know, I'm not, I, I will introduce you and say that uh, we had the pleasure of having Professor Verbal talk about travaux préparatoires. <laughs> you could say with an English accent. <laughs> Thank you so much for the invitation. Great pleasure uh, to be on the podcast. Thank you, Sadia. Enjoy. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you for your time. This was great. All right. Last happy fun time of 2021. Yeah. <laughs> Which year it's is time it? time to go to 2022. Let's yeah. just go. And, and we are leaving 2021 with a discussion on how to leave the firm. Yes. <laughs> so you've been at Jeet since the beginning of your well, career? Well, that's the thing. It's like I started my career at Jeet um, in 2010, um, but then I left them for another firm in the U.S. Right. Um, and then I, I went to an uh, English firm. And now I can't, I mean, well, now it's been a couple of years now. I've been, I'm back. Right. And yeah. the way you've just described that, and we're already going to include that, the way you've just described that is exactly what we're talking about, which is you had did not say the firm names that you went to. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And that is exactly the point, because you're <laughs> loyal to Jeet so much so that you're not even going to mention a competitor. <laughs> that's true and did you notice that on websites no one yeah says the work the firms that they worked for previously except 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 if they work in boutique firms right because it's check that out because because no because yeah first of all they get work control from them um i don't know if that's the first point but also because they use the fact that they're like ex Allen Aubrey, ex freshfield ex sherman because otherwise they it would be like non-existent you know what i mean gives them legitimacy yeah uh, exactly exactly if you're moving to like a same band or same kind of firm then yeah it's like your competition and you don't need the name but otherwise you use it you milk it i noticed that on people's bios that's yeah. very true hmm. Well, this came from Jan Kunster, our editor. Thank you again, Jan, for contributing once again to Happy Fun Time. But um, he was mentioning that one firm that he knows of was splitting into two different firms. One, I think maybe there would have been a um, kind of one firm continuing on and then someone split off. So one of the partners would leave and start their own. And there's been basically a divorce uh, of uh, in the firm and the children are having to choose which parent to follow. Yeah, I guess. Um, and the question, and, you know, we saw this, for example, with Voltaire Fieda and Fieda, we, we see these kind of splits and, and, uh, and where people go and where the recruitment happens. And I've never been in the carnage of a split before, but I'm sure it must be completely underhanded and confidential and no one knows who's going where. And you have to, 
I guess, choose based off your own career and in that, in that instance and, and which partner you're willing to follow. But um, have you guys heard of anyone, you know, any of these splits or any? Yeah, I think they're happening right now as well. Like in the, especially in London, you hear there's so many, I mean, I'm talking about London because it's the market where I practice. I'm sure it's happening elsewhere, but in during um, the pandemic, I have not ever seen as much movement um, in the arbitration field. I don't yes. know if that rep, rep, you know, representation is accurate, but you keep seeing this partner moving from that you know, firm to another firm. And so it is the reality of a lot of, I, I know firsthand from a lot of um, friends that are associates that they have to make those decisions right mm-hmm. now. And it's tough and it's tough. Uh, because you have a, a huge chunk of partners leaving an existing team and what happens. I mean, even with, uh, for example, the notorious example of Sherman, right. you know, I mean, and GBS. You know, yeah, they, they left, right. And they took so many people, but yet there were still some people who stayed behind at Sherman. And I'm sure they had those conversations uh, at the time. Uh, absolutely. Um, and then what do you do as the, an associate at the new firm? Um, following the, a partner of the old firm and how do you behave towards your previous colleagues and how do you treat them? I mean, I don't know. I, I know after leaving Mannheimer, I have, you know, kind of, and this is a, a big thing about Mannheimer's culture is, you know, making sure everyone leaves on a good note because it always is going to pay, mm-hmm. pay back um, in good, in goodwill. But I, and I think that I would have that loyalty probably because I left jurisdictions really, but um, I, I think that some people would have a problem or feel conflicted about whether they would refer work to their old firm or, you know, how that, how that all would operate. And I don't think it's quite clear cut on how people treat that. But of course there was also the fresh fields one, right? Of course, like uh, they start three grounds. Remember that right. was a while ago now, but I, 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 mean, I don't know if it was true or not. I have no idea, but I, I wonder if they don't have like a clause, um, you know, preventing, you know, the guys leaving from taking the associates for a number of years or so, um, like kind of a similar to a non-compete clause, like you can't use our resources or you leave, you know, you, you don't touch the associates for a number of years and then, then they can leave or something like that. I don't know. No, I, I think it's, I think it's an employment law in mm. England. Because yeah. ah. there was there was a partner at Winston that left and he had been with his team for years and it was announced that only he was leaving and everyone looked at the associates being like, when are you going to resign? Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, I don't know, just considering my options and whether to stay. And then obviously three months later they left. But there, I think there is some sort of, even if it's not in the contract or maybe it was in the, in the term, the policies. Yeah. I also think there are limitations depending on the jurisdiction uh, on, you know, it, as with non-competes. Some jurisdictions are very liberal, le- letting you agree on whatever. Some others are, are imposing restrictions on 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 the restrictions that you can put in contracts in the scenarios. I think. I bet there is probably a lot of infighting related to the um, documents and information from the old firm. If you're doing a split like that, um, mm-hmm. you you're going to want access to files and clients and I, I and typically you know according to your contract you're not allowed to take anything and you're not allowed to take any templates or research or anything and I think that it's probably really gray area on how people handle that when they when they split off can I ask you on this I think this is a general point 
cutting across several different angles. Are you, we, loyal to people or to institutions or brands? Well, I mean, it's a bit tricky because institutions are made up of people, obviously, but do you feel loyalty towards former colleagues more than former firms, for mm. example? Or is it, is it the personal relationships or is it some sort of abstract, like, you know, the longstanding institution that you feel the connection to? That's a good point. Mm-hmm. I think my loyalty and, you know, amorous thoughts of my old firm would change if I didn't know anyone there anymore. I think because you're you're thinking about, yeah, the trust. Basically, you have the mutual trust and the goodwill. And I think that disappears when the, the people you associate it with disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there <clears throat> also like, is there a firm that has such a unique um like brands that you would go to work for that firm because like an Apple or like a Facebook, right. I don't know. I mean, these, these firms have very strong cultural um, uh, culture. Uh, and, I think, think Mannheimer in Sweden, at least in the limited Swedish context, and it's a small jurisdiction, but Mannheimer is that kind of firm where most people are lifers. You almost never see lateral hires. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, like yeah. you go there and you stay there until you retire as a partner. And that even if like there's some, you know, people leave the firm, the firm will still remain the firm. Mm-hmm. And we have some of those other, I think, like powerhouse brands. It's, yeah, it's yeah. more rare in the, like international major firm mm-hmm. universe, but I think it's Actually, Gide is very similar in that sense because they're like the big French and the original French one. And there used to be a time where what I did was not permitted. Once you left, you were not allowed to come back. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, it, the most of the partners were um, organic partners. So there were people who had started there. They called Baby Gide. So they were they oh, did no. that trend. Yeah, there's a term. There's actually a term. There was like a press article on this and so they they would train in jeet and they would become partners and there's so many of them like they've done only their career so my my profile is very very unique within the firm is that you start you leave you come back and now there are a couple of more doing that so they're being a little bit more open on that (laughs) respect yeah i think herbert smith is like that it's like so english and they take they prioritize people Mm -hmm. from, I I mean, this is informal and probably just like side street gossip, but um, (laughs) that they prefer to take people that have been there forever, but Mm -hmm. I can stand to be corrected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I I wonder if that changed now, you know, because it might, it might have been the case for other firms as well um, in the past. and, And now that the market is so competitive and, people keep moving around and you follow your leaders in a way, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you follow people, not the mm-hmm. institutions. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, and this is advice that I give to all junior lawyers that are asking whether they should move or not and how they should move and what they should look for. And I always say that you have to apply to the individual, apply to work with someone and not work yeah. with the firm because it can change and the firm can change completely. It also depends which level of seniority you are, I think. Because if you are a junior lawyer or a mid-level associate, the most important, of course, the people person, the people um, point that you made is very important. But what you're looking for is also the good work. So it comes from the good, mm-hmm. work, comes from good management. It, it, you're looking for the for the best experience, and you're still training, and you never stop, you know, training, even if you're not a trainee, con, you know, lawyer, um, when you're more senior and you're looking for, like, for example, Brian, you did, 
when you moved, mm-hmm. and that, that's probably more a question than an assertion, but I imagine, you know, what was also important for you was the opportunities, um, you know, in comparison with your business plan is what platform of people that also the institution could bring you, exactly. uh, you know, help you develop your career, I imagine, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you're more senior, it's more about, as you say, the the dynamic of the team, mm-hmm. where the yeah. where the opportunities will be and what your role within the team will be. And mm-hmm. because it can change, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, between firms. Because if it were only the people, then you would only see boutiques, you know, and that's probably why you have spinoffs and boutiques that are mushrooming everywhere. It's because people follow the people. Yes. Um but but if but if if there was no value at all to the firm, then you know the the people who stayed behind at Sherman wouldn't have stayed behind. Mm. Do you think uh, that but the the these emergence of so many boutiques is specific to arbitration practices? In light of the fact that arbitration is such a people focused, I think so, and I also think that that. Are at big firms, arbitration lawyers face bigger constraints due to conflicts of interest mm-hmm. than other kinds of lawyers at big firms. If you want to start your own you know, arbitrator practice or take other kinds of cases, uh, it, it makes it easier if you have a smaller entity. Uh, but I think we do see some, at least on the Swedish market, there's been some like boutique movement in the transactional space as well, I think. Right. Like agile, small teams, same sales pitch essentially, but I guess you need more legs for the typical transaction, more associates than you do for the typical dispute. Mm. Definitely. Well, muddy waters yet again. <laughs> Stay put. Don't deal with it. <laughs> um, well, happy Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, everything in between. No gifts this season. I guess we've been repeating ourselves, trying to find good arbitration gifts for a number of years now. <laughs> we might as well just leave that out. I- I have heard people tell me they are awaiting arbitration station merchandise. So uh, listeners, if that is true, tell us and we will make a decision as to whether we need to uh, have some merchandise. Speaking of brand loyalty. Yeah, that's exactly. a good point. I'll do a mock-up and then Joel can tweet it and then we can see what the type of response <laughs> we can get. Yeah. Well, I wish you guys all the success in 2022. Uh you too. Happy holidays to everyone and yes. all uh, happiness and success, I would say. There you go. To everyone. Yeah. And health. Oh, gosh. We're oh, forgetting health. the most oh, important things. Oh. <laughs> These two things do not matter if you are not healthy. Yeah. That's true. All right. Well, enjoy your trips, you guys. Thank you. See you soon. See you next year. See you in London. <laughs>